Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas guys talking. Hi, this is Joaquin Alvarado. I'm the CEO of the Center for Investigative Reporting. And with our partners at PRX, we produce a Reveal, which is a weekly public radio show and podcast focused on great investigative reporting from around the country. One of our main contributing partners is the Texas Tribune, and I'm very excited to have the honor of introducing this week's TribCast. So uh, thanks for listening, and please check out Reveal on, on public radio across Texas, and, and, and you can get the podcast in iTunes or on any of your Android apps. Now your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here with the TribCast for the third week of January. I'm joined by editor Emily Ramshaw. How could it possibly be the third week of January? I was supposed to have a baby two weeks ago. <laughs> she's still here, and as you can see, she's getting a little bit cranky. Uh, <laughs> reporter Matthew Watkin. Good morning. And reporter Edgar Walters. Hey um, so we're um, this is the first TribCast after Abbott announced the... Um, his proposal to amend the federal constitution. Rewrite the constitution. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, I ran into this funny um, political correctness thing. Uh, the people who are promoting this idea, and Abbott is, um, actually it turns out that this has been going on for a long time, and Abbott is a little bit late to the game. Um, he's the first governor to jump in like this. Um, but this has been going for a while, and if you call it a constitutional convention, everybody's hair stands up. Um, Why is that? Well, a constitutional convention, if you're a purist, is when you throw the thing out and rewrite it. We had a constitutional convention, and that's where the original constitution was written. This is called, in their parlance, a convention of states, mm -hmm. where the states would go in and on some limited basis or unlimited basis, amend yeah. the constitution. It depends on how they come in. They could say, let's convene and write a constitutional amendment on the balanced budget and you couldn't talk about anything else you would limit it to that um so um, just so you know that as you begin talking okay but whatever you want to call it what are the chances this thing actually happens um well it's i would say slim to none i mean if you were in Vegas, betting. <laughs> right. I, go, buy your, go buy your $1.5 billion lottery ticket today. Yeah. So in order for it to actually work, okay, so in order to call the convention, you need 34 states to sign on and say, we're ready. We'll show up. We'll show up. Well, and to get them to sign on, you have to have yeah, both houses their of legislatures. each, you know, of, of their legislatures sign on mm. in right. Texas. We know how easy that is. Well, it's different in every state. In Texas, it takes two-thirds of each house just to say we're in. Yeah. And uh, worth noting in the past, I mean, in, just in 2015, this last legislative session, um, a similar you know, a, a, a resolution saying let's have a convention pass the House, it did not pass the Senate. So, the, In theory, more conservative Senate. Right. Right. And there were some conservatives in Texas who expressed opposition. Yeah, to I mean, the, idea. the Tea Party doesn't exactly love this. Yeah, it's. Go ahead. It's interesting because I think they, you know, do, in my experience talking to Tea Party folks, it sounds like they're pretty much on board with everything Abbott is proposing within the amendments themselves. Like, sure, give, you know, reclaim power for the states, give, uh, you know, balance the budget. Um, you know, it all sounds like a good idea. Uh, but when you get it, it's sort of the method that ends up being the controversial piece, which I had no idea was the case. But there's kind of this whole constitutional geekery um, where, 
um, <laughs> you know, the tea, good word the constitutional for it. geek community. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I had no idea. Uh, but like a rookery. Um, These are the same people who are checking on Ted Cruz's citizenship right now. (laughs) Well, so I think, you know, people who are, you know, I think these amendments, the idea for these amendments kind of come from the idea that you're skeptical of government in general, right? And I think a lot of Tea Party um, people uh, kind of, that skepticism also comes to light here where they say, we're skeptical that if you actually get together and try to fix the the Constitution, I mean, who are we to do that? And in fact... uh, isn't it possible that we could end up drastically rewriting this document and coming up with something much worse? So it's interesting within the Tea Party community. I think there is a genuine split over, um, you know, I, I don't think it's so much Abbott's ideas about reigning in federal government that they're split over, but so much like how should that actually get done? I mean, two things. First of all, you hear, you know, there's all this talk about constitutional conservatives all the time. You know, these conservatives are always saying, you know, just rely on the Constitution. Look at how it's written. You know, and now we're having a conversation about sort of upending it and rewriting elements of it. The, The second part that's confounding to me is, you know, Abbott laid this out as a major policy proposal, you know, huge press releases, uh, you know, a 99 or 90 page document. 353 footnotes. Right. Why not? It does go on. (laughs) Why not propose something, say, achievable? Well, this discussion has happened on the Tribcast before, this uh, debate over who's the most powerful statewide elected official in the state. You listen to the Tripcast. I, I know. Man, <laughs> boy, and Evan doesn't even do that. I, I, <laughs> Evan doesn't listen when he's in here. <laughs> right. Well, I think it would be Evan right now who would be who likes to argue, right, that it's Dan Patrick, right? And your major policy announcement being, A, one that's not even necessarily Texas-centric, and B, something that most people agree has an incredibly low likelihood of actually happening. Right. That's got to say something about the, you know, your priorities or yeah, yeah, and, well, and the, you know, it's a marketing plan. You know, others have been, you know, as, as Edgar says, the geekery is out there. You know, there are websites set up around, you know, how to form a convention of states, what the ideal application from each state ought to look like. So even that we people get into who don't, thing. even people who don't love Abbott, actually, you know, have argued, including in Trib Talk, you right. know, that this is actually a pretty good idea. There were four or five. Um, Proposals for um, conventions of states last time from the Texas legislature. 27 states have applied for a convention of states to do this on a balanced budget amendment already. They're trying to get seven more states. So a lot of this is going on. Abbott's jumping in late, and it's kind of a marketing effort, right? So you look at it and you say, um, okay, so the chances of this are low. It could be the kind of thing that gives you a leadership voice in the national party. I mean, you know, all the Texas governors, the last three or four Texas governors before him have been national figures. Why not me? Didn't um, Rick Perry even propose this? No, but, you know, they all had their way of getting into national politics. And I this, mean, but didn't it wasn't fed up all about sort of, you know? Yeah, it was, you know, uh, how do we constrain the federal government? How do we empower the states? How do we change this balance? I thought of power he at one basically. point had called for some kind of convention. I, I th- yeah, I want to say in 2011 he made an emergency yeah. item to call. I think a he did convention. It it didn't end up. It wasn't successful, but no, that and was its centered. opponents included people like Connie Burton, who who right. was then you know Northeast Tarrant Tea Party and is right. now in the legislature. And that one was also smaller in scope than Abbott's proposal. Mm-hmm. I mean, this I think, as I understand it, former Governor Perry's uh, idea was strictly about balancing the budget. But um, to me, what's interesting is you know, so there have been theories. I think I saw in Bloomberg View people are saying maybe this is Abbott positioning himself to 
and whether it be a presidential contender or just looking forward, be some kind of a, a figure, you know, on a national scale. Right. It's interesting to me that this kind of puts him more in line right now with Marco Rubio, who uh, a few days before Abbott's announcement came out and said, yeah, let's have a convention of states. Somewhere a little part of Ted Cruz just died. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Right. Ted Cruz actually has said, you know, some elements of this he thinks are a good idea, specifically with regards to the balanced budget, but he's not gone as far to say, let's have a convention of states, right? Right. Yeah. Texas already voted for the balanced budget thing. You know, we're mm-hmm. one of the 27 states that are in the in the box on that. Um, and so they need they would need seven more states just to convene a convention. But then but then you still need 38 in order to pass it. So well, you got there. You're, so you have to have 34 states to bring the states into this convention. That convention has to produce a proposal for a constitutional amendment, much like Congress would, mm-hmm. and then send it back to the states and three fourths of them, 38 have to sign off on that specific proposal. It's a big hill to climb. Is the agenda set when the convention is called? I mean, could they the states come in and propose whatever they want? Yeah, that's to? why the wording of the this is called an application. So the states pass, you know, uh, a resolution applying for a convention of states for the purposes of X. And as long as they sort of line up on X and you get 34 in the same position, they all say balanced budget or they all say, you know, um, motorcycle helmet laws or whatever the heck they want to do and you can't do anything else so you couldn't come in and do roe v wade you couldn't come in and do civil rights there's disagreement on this though i mean i don't know in everything that i've seen written about this there are two camps there's the camp that says you can't add things to the agenda and there's the camp that says you absolutely can add things to the agenda i mean it hasn't really been done before (laughs) it hasn't been done ever right Right. so the application of this i think but but to me I'm, i'm just more interested in sort of the the politics of this i mean this was the first time i can recall in the last year that abbott has you know basically made this sort of fuss and said, look, here's, I have a big policy proposal coming out. You know, you're not going to want to miss this, right? I mean, has there been anything else like this where he's given these remarks? And and to choose this, yeah. you know, I mean, again, when you're going through your calculus, your political calculus, why do you choose this very sort of academic thing versus, you know, an actionable, something that seems it's, far more actionable? It seems like it's kind of keeping with his brand, though, mm-hmm. of the fighting, the overreach of the federal government. I mean, that's kind of how he made his name as attorney general, mm-hmm. right, suing suing the Obama administration. He's, he's, like the the, the interesting thing to me is that he doesn't want to extend himself or seem to want to extend himself outside of his base. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not this doesn't reach into any pockets of. Texas that, you know, Abbott doesn't already, where he's not already popular. It's not a widening thing. It's just, you know, sort of throwing things to the base that the base wants to hear. And not that far from from the AG's office. You know, again, the sort of legalese around this, the sort of, you know, constitutional interpretation. Yeah, yeah. There, is sort of, there is sort of justice a justice passed. Yeah, right. right. There is kind of a, I've not quite finished being AG quality yeah. to it, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's that kind of an exercise. I also just wonder if there's a kind of be careful what you wish for. I mean, the legislature is not meeting again until 2017. A lot of this kind of fighting the overreach of the federal government you know, we might have a Republican president in 2017, and will these... Well, you get to weigh in in a way that, you know, you might... You know, one of the interesting things about this um, is that it's occurring in the eight weeks before the Texas primary. We're going to have a big presidential contest. They're all down here. What do I need to say to Texans? Oh, I see their governor is talking about this constitutional stuff. Um, Cruz has already kind of knocked around potential changes to the Constitution without necessarily talking about the process. Rubio, as you say, has has talked about a convention of states. You know, the other candidates might talk about this and might put Abbott in that conversation. Um, So they're all coming to the state. It looks like we've got a moment where Cruz is rising here. Um, And, you know, I guess Trump is holding. Trump seems to be the one that everybody's talking about. 
But, well, and you really saw Cruz for the first time this week go after Trump. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's been over the last couple of weeks that Trump has really shifted and has started really attacking Cruz hard, particularly on this question of, you know, whether Cruz is qualified to be president based on his birth in Canada. Right. Um, and, you know, Trump basically has, you know, said that there are now legal experts suggesting and, and he's not the one saying Cruz can't be president. But boy, the Democrats are going to say that Cruz can't be president. Right. And, I'm not know, saying he can't be president. President, I'm just pointing to the people who say yeah, he can't be president. <laughs> right, exactly. But for the well, first time, Cruz, yeah, Cruz. Then I think Cruz in. comes, it turns around and says, "Well, let me point to the people you're pointing to and say, these are Harvard lawyers, Democrats, Hillary Clinton supporters." And right. Didn't know you Trump took your advice. Kind of a, yeah, close <laughs> from, relationship with the Clintons and. Right. Right. That I'm was, not saying he is a Democrat. I'm just saying he knows a lot of yeah, Democrats. Clearly, yeah. Right, right. Clearly, he really trusts the opinions of all these Democrats. So, so what's the state of play in this race? As it comes to Texas, and can you you really have a sense of it? As it comes to Texas, I mean, I think there are some you know interesting. Or will it ever come? Yeah, to Texas? right. I know we got to get through a couple of states first, but I mean, I think what's you know we had there was a really interesting story by Abby Livingston this week that looked at um, you know Cruz's travel schedule and and his events nationally and how they compare to other Republican candidates and how they compare to sort of previous strategy. And Cruz has really been spending he spent forty percent of his time in Iowa, and basically the biggest bulk of the rest is spent in the SEC states in the South. Right. You know, unlike pouring all his time and energy into New Hampshire and South Carolina, which are the next two, and Nevada, the, which are the, sort of the subsequent states, he's basically been spending his time in the South, which I think is, you know, it's a, a good sign for uh, the role of Texas in a, in a race like right. this. But he's really been actively, you know, playing his hand, saying, you know what, I really want to come out super strong in Iowa. I'm probably less panicked about those next, you know, coming states. And then I'm going to show my strength in the South. A lot of those states are going to be voting as the early states are voting. So we get the the Iowa on February 1st, New Hampshire on the 9th, Nevada on the 20th, um, and South Carolina the 20. Oh, I may God. I may be mixing up Nevada and South Carolina. Anyway, they're South both Carolina in February. Comes before, yeah. Texas starts voting on the 16th. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll 50. You know, generally speaking, more than half of Texas voters vote early. So by March 1st, which is the date of the so-called SEC primary, half the Texas voters will already have voted. Cruz's strategy, you know, if you front load that, that could pay off. And, you know, assume yeah. early voting in other states is going to do something like that. And he's got a week in, you know, he's making his swing. He's got a week in New Hampshire coming up. He's got a few events in South Carolina next week. Um, so, you know, Cruz is definitely hitting those states. But I do think it's interesting where his early investment of time has been. And Iowa, you know, it looks like it's paid off so far. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, he and Trump have been relatively neck and neck. Cruz looked like he was pulling ahead. Um, you know, meanwhile, it seems like more of the drama is now on the Democratic side where Bernie Sanders is making all these strides against Hillary. So. Right. That's starting to starting to close yeah. up. Yeah, exactly. How do you think, though, that this Trump attack, uh, if Trump obviously feeling the heat um, starts, you know, pulling the semi birther argument against Cruz, how does that um, play out? I mean, to me, my immediate reaction is, oh, this seems to be maybe the beginning of the end for Trump. I that had been sort of my initial suspicion. But then I don't know if any of you read, there was Eric Erickson, that, that conservative columnist, had right. a column where he basically said, suggested that he thought that that argument was actually doing Trump a lot of good and finding success, which um, 
kind of surprised me. Well, and the weird thing is there are these constitutional experts coming out and saying, actually, you know, don't totally throw this argument out. It's a question about the term natural born citizen versus, mm, right. you know, what constitutes natural born and has that term been tested before? How does this how does this get figured out? I mean, I know with Obama, it was just kind of it, you know, it, dismissed it, as ridiculous. It's as just, it was. You know, it's, Someone it's, would have to challenge it in court. It's a noisemaker. And yeah. if somebody wants to challenge it in court, you know, first they have to have standing. And, you know, you yeah, have how to do you have standing for that. Well, you'd have to have Cruz as president. And but for Cruz, I would be president. And now I have standing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So so this came up with John McCain. He was born in the Panama Canal Zone. Um and the Senate actually passed a resolution or something that said, yes, yes, he is an American. Um, you know, <laughs> the Obama thing never got litigated. It got politically litigated, and it's still, you know, there's still, you know, if you've got Google, you can find out all you want to know about it. Um, Pretty fascinating that we've now had multiple presidential cycles with birther issues on both sides. Right, and now we've got the gentleman from Ontario. So, yeah. you know, um, I, I guess worst case scenario, you're just reminding the Republican electorate that he's Canadian. Well, that's what it is. I mean, it's politics. Mm-hmm. You're you're basically having he he's going to be talking about this when he would rather be talking about something else, and that's really how this works. You know, the the Kenya thing didn't um, didn't derail the Obama candidacy, but it's been persistent. I suspect if Cruz is elected, you know, this thing keeps up in the campaign. He's going to be talking about this Canada thing on a low level for the rest of his career. You know, it's just one of those, now it's in the, now it's in the bloodstream. Yeah. It's just, just, it's remarkable to me. This is just sort of seems like such a non-issue to keep getting brought up. I mean, it sort of reeks of desperation on either side, you know, that this is still a subject of conversation. Well, it's just so amazing that with Trump, that whatever criticism, you know, all these other candidates who are trying to criticize Trump or other opponents, and they just can't get any traction. But whatever Trump says, no matter what the criticism is, no matter how legitimate it is, people talk about it. Well, that's what happens when you're the front runner. He's I like, think. well, he's yeah. that kid in school that nicknamed everybody, and the nickname stuck, even if you didn't like it. You know, you're going to be called wedgie for the rest of your life. You know, just a, a tough thing. Um, so let's talk about Rick Perry, who's um, been flushed out of the presidential campaign, but keeps floating back up. He's in Florida this time. Boy, this guy is really amazing. So Rick Perry, uh, has his first sort of professional uh, move, now, it looks like, after running for president, is lobbyist. Uh, he is actually registered in Florida. He's now listed as the chief strategy officer for a company called MCNA Dental, which is a dental insurance company. Um, this is a company that was a major donor to Perry's presidential campaign. So he's been in Florida. Perry has meeting with Rick Scott, his, his friend and, and governor there, trying to sort of basically get him to create a carve out in the Medicaid program for this for this dental insurer. So, I mean, I, I, to me, this is fascinating because is this Rick Perry's next turn? I mean, I guess it could be seen as as predictable. There's a lot of money there. But are we now going to look at the future of Rick Perry colon lobbyist? So he's not a hired gun here. He's an employee. I mean, he's a, he's a hired gun. Well, I mean, he's being called the chief strategy officer. So whether you're on the payroll, you know, full time payroll, or right, that's but he's a contract not like a position. contractor that you know, I, like one of the lo- lobbyists with you know, seventeen different clients. Or, it's I mean, it's unclear to so me. He, yeah, right. He said he, he he wasn't registered, right? And then well, he sort he said, of registered. They said as soon he registered as, uh, out of an abundance of caution. Like after media started talking about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's unclear to me at which point he registered. I think he registered I think on that yesterday he, on, on Tuesday. He's What's, smart enough probably to register right away. Well, the, the uh, question yeah. in Florida came up because it somehow wasn't on the governor's official public calendar. And then right. when a reporter asked 
suddenly it appeared. Yeah, I mean, um, they're buddies, these guys. Right. I, you know, the other thing that's interesting about this company is that um, what, what the vice chair of the board of directors is Albert Hawkins, who's the former direct, uh, HHS Health and Human Services uh, Commission director in Texas, who was a Perry appointee. So, you know, all these relationships, what goes around comes around. But, I, I you know, f- for me, the big question is, is, so is this what Rick Perry's up to now? Are we going to see him suddenly cropping up, you know, doing this kind of work? Obviously, there's a lot of money there. And maybe this is just the healthcare geek in me, but does this also... Um, Another geekery. Here we go. <laughs> does this... Does Rick Perry... I mean, if he's he's representing a managed care company within a Medicaid program, obviously managed care companies are all about Medicaid expansion and expanding Medicare. Does this... Does I, I wonder how... <laughs> is Florida an expansion state? It's not, No, right? they're... Yeah. It's heavily debate. I mean, they're in a very similar right. position as Texas. Rick Scott and Rick Perry were like the two, you know, no They were the no holdouts. Never, 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 never. And then suddenly there are billions of dollars on mm-hmm. the line when the Obama administration says, we're not going to give you this other pot of money if you don't right. expand. It's. Um, I wonder if this kind of changes. I think we see a lot of, um, at least in my world, a lot of people who leave state government and become lobbyists uh, and you know, are suddenly finding themselves on the side where they're all about Medicaid expansion. I wonder if we would ever see that with Rick Perry. I think the question is whether this, you know, again, this is his chosen path. Like, once you go lobby, can you go back to politics? Jerry Patterson did it. Uh, Jerry Patterson Mm -hmm. um, left the state Senate and lobbied for HMOs, I think, and then uh, successfully Mm -hmm. ran for land commissioner. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so, but you know, it, it does create baggage, right? You know, sure. it, it, anytime you go into the lobby, if you decide you want to have a political future, this is a place where people, you know, ping you. And again, that same, you know, that Medicaid managed care issue, this is right. something that could come up. So I think I, it's it's an interesting turn for him. You know, I, I clearly see why he's doing it. It's a good way to make a living in right. the aftermath of being the longest service serving well, governor. You can, you can see why somebody would want him to lobby for him. Oh, I mean, totally. you know, my, my close friend, Rick Scott, this is the best access you're ever going to get. You know, Rick Perry can get in there. He knows sure. the politics. He can tell the guy how to maneuver yeah. out of his, you know. And isn't it also relatively common? I mean, I think I think I'd heard, for example, that Ken Cuccinelli, I, I, you know, I'm not positive, but I think, you know, the former governor in Virginia had gone on to also, you know, meet with, you know, basically lobby for companies, yeah, you know, I, in other states. I don't think like it's, it's unusual. I just think this is the first public, this is the first one we know about. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, and it's funny that, you know, well, a few months ago he was in a presidential contest. Right, and exactly. now he's lobbying. That's a, that's a very fast turn. Well, what was the story? Um, oh, right. With McSwain, that McSwain had written at the Dallas Morning News he, um, or at the State. I mean, he was on some. I think he was being paid to be on some board uh, on boards for apps right. that right. were lobbying. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to be. He, you know, he's going to be. Perry's going to show up on boards certainly, mm-hmm. and and already has and started to pay, show up on right. boards. I mean, you know, you know, and it's, it's a, you know, if you're in a public business or in a business that does a lot of, you know, public private kind of stuff, it makes sense to get a former governor and somebody with a name and somebody with that kind of access to others, you know, Rick Scott's going to pick up the phone when Rick Perry's there and not necessarily when, you know, Joe Schmo's there. So, I mean that that makes some sense and, you know, it's it makes I guess it's a little less jarring in some ways that Perry shows up on some corporate boards than um when Perry shows up, you know, actually on the lobby register waiting out in the office to see somebody you know i'd like to see the chief of staff to talk about this provision of this bill right just something a little bit different about it yeah 
So while we're talking about Aggies, let's talk about the comic stylings of uh, Texas A&M Chancellor John Sharp. Um, Ross's can, yeah, former can walk boss. Us, can you, can yeah. you walk us into this? I guess we should start with a disclosure. 20 years ago, I was his executive assistant. Um, so, uh, Is that really the job title, executive assistant? Executive assistant. He was a firefighter. Um, director of communications was part of it and some oh, other stuff. But sounds like he could use you it back. Stopping yeah. this. back in this. Back <laughs> yeah. in the day. But I've recovered now, so let's let's talk about this. Sure. Well, uh, Texas A&M Chancellor John Sharp, former classmate of Rick Perry's, by the way, um, made some news this week uh, for uh, his... Uh, I guess a, a, a press release he sent out. Um, well, he didn't start this. He did not start this. Uh, right. Chip Brown, an Austin uh, sports reporter who covers uh, basically Longhorn football, Longhorn athletics, um, has a pretty strong reputation among sports journalists for the way he covered conference realignment a few years ago. Uh, came, and occasionally he kind of dabbles in uh, A&M stuff as well. And he had a story on his uh, website basically raising all these concerns about uh, John Sharp saying that Sharp, uh, you know, uh, was involved in the recruitment of A&M's former highly touted uh, quarterback, uh, Kyler Murray, who has since transferred, um, perhaps was trying to contact the A&M football coach during the Alabama game this year, uh, telling him to... uh, uh, play this quarterback, Kyler Murray, when Richard when the Nixon other... calling plays for exactly. the Washington Redskins. Exactly, um, and then also uh, claiming that the uh, A&M's new giant stadium, which is maybe John Sharp's, you know, may end up being the biggest part of his legacy at A&M, right. uh, was uh, significantly over budget and was in f- causing financial problems for the university. Now that the price of oil has plummeted, yeah, the stinger that that Chip put in that. And that blog post was that um, it was the house that Johnny built, and he wasn't talking about Manziel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how, right. How um, is so? It's it, isn't the stadium built though? Was the, it was it financed was, with a bond? The or? stadium was built. It was financed with bonds. Uh, there was a lot of money that was pledged by donors, and I think that there's no question that. And I think maybe even I know A and M system people have said this in the past that you know hundred dollar oil. Help, you know, it, it's the house that Johnny built, and it's also the house that a hundred dollar mm. barrels of oil built. <laughs> it's easier to finance a thing like that if everybody's flush. Exactly. Right. So, and, how did Sharp respond to all of this? So, Sharp badly. Sharp, yeah. <laughs> Sharp, Sharp responded with a statement uh, that he distributed to reporters that um, was really unlike any statement that I've seen in a long time. And so, we I don't think we usually read from press releases, but I'm just going to uh, read a few choice kind of selections oh, from yes. this. Um, he calls, uh, uh, oh, yeah, first of all, I forgot to add one other thing that Chip Brown reported. He reported in December that um, Sharp was reviewing A&M coach Kevin Sumlin's uh, contract, uh, trying to basically fire him after uh, some news had gotten out that A&M's top two quarterbacks were planning to transfer. I should say from the Aggie point of view, this all makes it very difficult to recruit people to the football team. You're yes. creating a disturbance in the Aggie you know, network that makes it difficult to get uh, replacement five-star quarterbacks for the two who already left. Indeed. So uh, in this statement, I won't read all of it, but I'll read some selections. Uh, Sharp says that uh, Chip Brown's speculation about firing the football coach was, quote, a fairy tale, and quote, and there is no more unethical... No one more unethical than a reporter who has been embarrassed by being called out for misstating information, who then decides to seek revenge. This new report, a fairy tale on steroids, seems to be Chip Brown's attempt at revenge. The entire report is patently false, but here are a few of the biggest errors. 
basically then he goes on to say that Kyle Field was on time and on budget. Um, he says the, you know, fact the initial financing plan included $125 million in pledges, which are already in hand. Any speculation about the effect of oil prices? More hogwash. Brown has in his mind set a false narrative and isn't letting facts stand in his way. Um, then he goes on to the fairy tale about the uh, the quote fairy tale about uh, the Alabama game, saying he was in the chancellor's box. There were you know dozens of people there who saw him and knew that he wasn't on the phone. Um, let's see, he I did not call that off tackle run at Lost York. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Um, and then finally, here's just the concluding uh, paragraph. We su- we respectfully suggest that Mr. Brown should consider sticking to covering UT football Ooh. and leave reporting on Texas A&M to reporters who pay closer attention to the facts and who do not have some kind of personal axe to grind with John Sharp. In the meantime, we hereby nominate Cowchip Brown for sleaziest reporter in Texas. <laughs> with full confidence, he will what? win, hands down. So, you know, oh, can this, I add one more? Because this yeah, is my sure, favorite this is, thing. This is gold. Yeah. So, uh, he also talks about how uh, Sharp Cow and Chip. Perry were. Uh, uh, this is Chip, Chip Brown's Brown, article. Right. He talks about how Sharp and Perry were roommates at AM. Uh, and uh, Sharp says, or this statement, which I guess wasn't even necessarily attributed to anyone. Um, <laughs> It was just a statement from the university system. They were never roommates. Mr. Brown says he covered Governor Perry and then Comptroller Sharp as a news reporter for the Associated Press. Chancellor Sharp says he, quote, wouldn't know Chip Brown from Adam's house cat. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean. What? Did did Reed Hamilton type up this? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. The comedy gold aside, you know, would anybody have known about this if Sharp hadn't responded like that? Yeah, it was an article behind a paywall. Right. So, uh, you know, Chip Brown has a very loyal and devoted following. Well, he also has a radio show. And he also has a radio show. Um, But no, I mean, this would not have been... Blown up if Sharp hadn't gone on a tirade. I I didn't say it. No, I mean, don't you, as like a public official, doesn't somebody whisper in your ear, don't respond? I know that it's been done before. <laughs> he said sheepishly. Yep. <laughs> this is a part of kind of sh- how Sharp operates. I think he kind of in dis- uh, disagree with me if I'm wrong here, but he he uses this to it as his advantage. You know, he he likes to he like first of all he likes to needle UT. He's done that many oh, times. Oh, he loves to needle UT. Yeah. And and also he likes to kind of have this reputation as a guy who will you know, say some things that maybe you're not supposed to say if you're a politician or a right. or a, a chancellor and things like that. But as I, I think you will attest, he's also he knows what he's doing and he knows how to kind of keep the people who are his bosses happy and how to kind of uh, wield power in the institution that he's governing. I think he could probably fill Kyle Stadium with people who would um, cheer this kind of you know let's go let's go run over a reporter on this stuff. Um, I just wonder about elevating the fight and bringing this to everybody's attention that, you know, probably nobody was paying attention to or that only only people who were reading, you know, sports blogs pay attention to. Yeah, I just wonder how many open records requests they had to field this week about um, stadium finances. And cow chips. Well, and I think I think there'll probably be more of that. In fact, they answered part of that with a couple of press releases um, after all of this flap about uh, Moody's Investor Service mm. saying, you know, the quality of the bonds at A&M was great. A&M is one of eight universities in Texas with, you know, top-notch bonds. Everything's fine here. Nothing to see. Please move on. It's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting fight. Um, 
that's all of our time, though. So if you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Or want to critique our stories <laughs> and give our reporters nicknames. Or if you're John Sharp and you'd like to comment. Uh, you can also <laughs> sign up for Tribcast Alerts at texastribune.org slash tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. On behalf of Emily, Matthew, Edgar, and our producer, Todd, this is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. ran into Julian right on my way back from the doctor and I said, Julian, guess how much I weigh? And Julian goes, I don't fall into this trap. <laughs>